As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful. You have given to us this book that's not like any other book because it's alive. This book that lives is the very word of God. So now we pray that you would enable us to read it, listen to it, think about it in a manner worthy of the fact that it is the very word of God. Father, we may we come to it to hear you. May we come to it in complete submission of our lives to your word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. That's where finished with First Thessalonians, except for one piece that we'll pick up after Advent. I thought for this Advent season we'd consider the incarnation of Jesus. I want to read from Matthew chapter 1, only verse 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, please. Hear the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now I want, if God will help me, to take up this expression, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And there's, there's a lot more there, obviously, that we can take up, but I think this expression will occupy our time uh, our time this morning um, during this first Sunday of Advent. You know, there are various rhythms of life. We have daily rhythms. We have weekly rhythms of life. Uh, we have yearly rhythm, rhythms of life. During our days, we have work and rest and eat and all of that. As we move through our days during the week, we have work and rest, if you will. We have Sabbath on Sunday to stop and gaze upon God and put everything back in perspective. We have yearly rhythms in the context of our lives governed by seasons, for instance, governed by um, Perhaps uh, semesters governed by our vocations. And as we just ebb and flow, we move. And certain things mark time for us during the course of our year. It may even be uh, certain holidays like the one we just experienced, Thanksgiving. might be various anniversaries that we have. But we mark time various ways. We anticipate time in various ways. But... this Christian year for us is a way that we mark time as well. Advent is the beginning of it. And we begin to think now about the comings, plural, of our Lord Jesus. His coming as the babe in Bethlehem as he comes now. The incarnation, the word made flesh to dwell among us. This Jesus who's come to live for us, to die for us, to rise, ascend, and all of that. But also to return, this coming of Jesus in his return. This Advent, it's a way that we mark time, really, one year to the next. Each year at this time we stop, we think about this incarnation, this coming, really, of our Lord Jesus. Matthew lays it out for us in the context very 
early, this first chapter in Matthew is a genealogy or a genesis, really, of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, the question, why does he do that? Why does Matthew begin this gospel according to him, as we put it? Why does he do this? Why does he start out with this genealogy of Jesus? Well, we don't know. He doesn't tell why exactly, except that verse 17, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. In the genealogy, he lays out generation by generation in these clumps of 14. They're not exhaustive. There's a few he leaves out, but but in these generations, he, he lays it out. So he shows us from Abraham, important figure, obviously, in the old covenant, the one uh, God makes covenant with through whom he makes great promises that your name will be great. Everyone who blesses you will be blessed. Everyone who curses you will be cursed. You'll have many descendants through your seed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, so all of that set up in Abraham takes us through David, one section. And then from David, then to the deportation. That is when the southern kingdom, Judah, is, 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 is exiled, if you will, by the Babylonians. And then from then, from that point, the exile, to the coming of Jesus. You get the sense, don't you? Matthew is very much trying to show continuity. He's trying to show how this coming of Jesus is connected to Abraham and all from him. There's a connection. There's Jesus to everything that's gone on before. That isn't just wasted history, if you will. Something was taking place there and it culminates. It comes to fruition in that sense in this person, Jesus, who comes. You, you get that sense. And, 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 and so... We would say that these Gospels, while historical, haven't been written just for the purpose of giving us a history. Biographical, but but they're not just written for the purpose of giving us a biography. But they're actually good news. It's a proclamation of good news. That's what Gospel means, is a proclamation of Good news. It's historical, yes. Real history, yes. Biographical, yes. But, but, but it's, it's all of that with a, with a purpose, with an agenda. The purpose of the various gospel writers is, is to lay out for us, as John very purposefully puts it in his, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that there is life by believing his name. They, they want to show us something about Jesus. And they want to say this coming of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, all of that is good news, great joys. As the angel has announced to, to the shepherds, this is good news of great joy for all people. This, this epic news changes everything. And it's the very source of joy for everyone. Who believes. So Matthew, you see, trying to tie this coming of Jesus to all that's gone before has this continual refrain. If you read through his work, verse 22 of chapter 1, he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. You see, Matthew appears to be writing to an audience, perhaps a Jewish audience, that understands these prophetic words and, and, and knows them and has been anticipating because of them the coming of one, this Messiah, anointed one, Christ. And so, 
he, he lays it out very honestly over and over and over again. Something happens and, and Matthew rather parenthetically says, now this was done, this was spoken to fulfill what had been said concerning. And so we see that. So no surprise then that Matthew begins this way of saying, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He connects him to David, none bigger than he could have connected to in this old, this old covenant. David had been anointed king, you remember, by the prophet Samuel. And he came about to be anointed king by the prophet Samuel because the people of Israel wanted a king. They didn't always have a king. Well, they had a king. God was their king. He had established Israel to be his very own. Now, clearly, God is king over all, over everything. In one sense, there isn't anyone, anything that isn't in his kingdom. But in another sense, he he takes a particular people to be his very own. And thus he had taken Abraham to be his very own. He called Abraham and he did say to Abraham, I'm going to make covenant with you. I'm going to bless you. Everyone who blesses you will be blessed. Everyone who curses you will be cursed. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you many descendants, so many that you can't even count. As many as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. And through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And thus this people began. Then there was Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes. Then there was the time in Egypt and the exodus from Egypt by way of Moses and then entering this land by way of Joshua, you remember. And then the, the God ruled his people by way of uh, judges, they were called, these charismatic leaders, if you will, these judges. And when Israel would get into trouble, God would send these judges and, and deliver them from their trouble. And, and the people, though, began to clamor for a king. And you would think perhaps what they wanted in a king was someone to rule them so they wouldn't get into so much trouble, someone to rule them so they wouldn't sin, so, someone to rule them so they wouldn't turn away from God. But th- that isn't why they wanted a king. They wanted a king because they were envious of all the other nations. They looked at all the other nations and said, well, they have a king. All we have is God. God said, all right, I'll give you a king. And he gave them Saul. And Saul ended up being exactly like the people, more concerned with himself than he was with God. And so God ripped the kingdom from Saul. And he gave it to this one Samuel anointed, David. And David was rather the unking, at least in the very beginning, you see. He wasn't the one anybody expected to be king. When when Samuel went to the household of Jesse, where God had told him to go, to, to find the next king, the next king was among Jesse's sons, he started with the biggest and the oldest and the strongest and all of that, and he worked his way down the sons until he said, are there any more? Because God has said, it's none of these. And Jesse said, well, yeah, I got one, their kid brother, he's just a little scrubby little boy, and he's out, he's the shepherd, 
And the answer that's the one. And David became the champion of Israel. And David became king. And he extended Israel's borders. And he brought order. He united the tribes. And there was prosperity, you see, in Israel. But that wasn't all. You see, God then came to David with this turn, or whatever it is you do to find Bible passages, to Second Samuel in chapter 7. Second Samuel in chapter 7. God comes then to David. And you see, as the king of Israel, he was to be and was until his failures, David's failures. The king of Israel was to be the righteous representative of God on the earth. Or we could put it like this. He was to be the representative of God's righteous rule. He was to be just. He was to be merciful. He was to be compassionate. He was to be in that sense. As king over Israel, he was to be as if God were ruling Israel. Under God, ruling in submission to God in ways that God would rule. He was to be God's righteous rule, really on the earth. So now notice, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. As now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him a rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king, that is David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Here's the picture. David's king, all is well. He's at rest. He's in Jerusalem. His palace has been built and, and yet he looks and he sees that the Ark of God, this box, that contained, among other things, the Ten Commandments, this box that had the very top of it was the mercy seat upon which blood was sprinkled for the forgiveness of sins, the very box that lived in a tent that Moses had been instructed to build for this Ark. David looked around and said, I live in a great palace, but God lives in a tent. So here's what I'm going to do for him. I'm going to build him a temple. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I, was, I, I, I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off from all your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, 
as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, God has saying. Now, you have our relationship a bit wrong, David. It isn't that you do for me. It's that I do for you. I don't really need you, David. You need me. Who is it that defeated Goliath, David? Who is it defeated all your enemies, David? Who is it that brought this people here and gave them rest, David? Oh, yes. Went through you, David. But could you have done that, David? Then he goes on like this. He says, moreover, the Lord declares you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and, and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words. In accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. God makes a pun with David on the word house. He says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. Your son will build me a house. I'm going to build you a house but I'm going to build you a dynasty. It is way bigger than a house. The house of David I'm going to build. And the house of David will be a dynasty. I didn't give that to Saul. No dynasty happened with Saul. His son did not succeed him. You did. It wasn't Jonathan. It was you. Now your son and sons after you will succeed. You, you see. That's what I'm going to do. There's going to be on your throne one from you forever. I'm going to build that, David. In, in fact, verse 14, to your son and his son after him, verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, how can that be? How will the son of David actually be a son of God? That's what he's saying. Seeing that the, the ones that come after you, I'll be their father. They'll be my son. My sons. How can that be? Well, it isn't because they'll all be divine. It wasn't that Solomon was divine. It wasn't those who came from Solomon divine in that sense. Therefore, being sons of God. But this little expression, a son of, means more than just DNA. You see, in the days of David, one son did what the father did. And so you could think of a man's son as the one who carried after him in the same vocation. And so this little expression, son of, comes to mean to do 
that which your father does. And so he says, these who are from you will be my sons because they'll be kings. They'll rule as I rule. But we use that expression, don't we? We speak of a coach may have another coach that he's trained to be a son. Some weeks ago, I was in Texas preaching a, an ordination service, as you remember, for Kelly Liebengood. And at one point in the service, I looked at him and I said, Kelly, my son. Now, Karen didn't go, whoa. <laughs> Everyone knew what I meant. For he'll carry on, you see, as we've carried on. And so we get it. We understand. That's what he means in that sense. But then this great promise. Notice, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we know that that, that, that he even says that some of these kings, these kings might sin and be guilty of iniquity. And I'll, I'll, I'll discipline them. But, but, but that'll be temporal. I won't take the kingdom away from you, David, ever. Now, that could be fulfilled in one of two ways. It could be fulfilled by successive kings coming from the family of David. And there would always be such a king on the throne of Israel forever. Or it could be fulfilled by one coming Eventually from him, David, and ruling forever. It's all laid out. Now, of course, we know what happened in ancient Israel. We know that after Solomon, there was a split in, the, in Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdoms didn't have kings from David. And, and their situation was a brutal mess. Idolatry was rampant and eventually in 722 BC, the Assyrians came and destroyed them or exiled them and moved them all about and all of that. And Judah, the southern kingdom, we know what happened there. These kings from David, few were faithful. Most were not. And we know what happened in 586-ish. The Babylonians came in and took them away, took them out of Jerusalem by and large. And even though they were allowed to come back eventually, and even though the temple was rebuilt, not as glorious as, as it had been, but the temple had been rebuilt in a fashion, we still know that from, from that captivity, from that Babylonian captivity, there, there, there was no king from David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, in Israel. They were an occupied people, one group after another coming to occupy Judah, and, and, and then you see huh, these amazing words. Jesus Christ, the son of David. Everyone would read that, should read that, and suck air. Because yes, we see it. See, even though that happened, there was this great expectation of, of this Davidic uh, king uh, who was who was really to come. Uh, we see it, for instance, um, in the psalm, psalm number two. Turn there quickly. 
Psalm number two, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the nations that had been ruled by Israel under the days of David uh, looked around and says, why is this so? We need to, we need to, we need to extricate ourselves from this situation from against this anointed king. David and God's response, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord says, what are you saying? When my king rules, I rule. So when you come against my king, you come against me. Really? You want to say these things? And then this Davidic king speaks, verse 7. I'll tell of the decree the Lord had said to me, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. In the sense that today you rule, today you're king. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, Go and make disciples of every nation. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. What authority does Jesus have to make a statement like that? Because he was enthroned with this. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And now then to the kings, he says this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, S-O-N, S-U-N, could be really dangerous. Kiss the sun, that is pay homage to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Psalm 89, I read earlier this morning. I won't reread all of that. But it's a psalm of reiteration. It's a psalm that speaks of this covenant with David. It's this psalm that says that uh, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then this breathtaking statement once for all I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David God saying that then we come to Psalm 110 and this is a psalm that's quoted often in the New Testament Jesus speaks of it of himself in fact when he's talking with the Pharisees he looks at them and he, he asks them this question after, after they've been questioning him and Jesus said to them now If, in fact, the Christ is David's son, how can he also be David's Lord? How can your son be your Lord? And he quotes this psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, and if you're looking at this, it's likely that in your version, 
your translation of the Bible, the first word, Lord, is capitalized because it's Yahweh, and the second word is not because it's Adonai. And saying, Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Ah, Jesus said, there it is, you see. I'm that Lord of David whom the Lord addresses. And then, of course, as we come to the prophets, this passage we read this morning for our call to worship, Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, that is, he'll rule, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, there will be no stopping this. A child will come. He will be given. He will be king. And he'll be this one who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His government will know no end. It will be the throne of David. This very one promised through and to and through David will come and God will make sure all of this happens. In Isaiah chapter 11, we read of this one who comes from Jesse, that is from David's father, and we read of him. And upon him the spirit of the Lord shall rest and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And, and uh, he won't judge by what his eyes see or hear disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall, he shall judge the poor. Decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be his belt. Faithfulness will be upon him. And then he'll bring peace. Such peace that the wolf shall lie down and dwell with the lamb. And the leopard with the goat. And the calf with the lion. And a little child shall lead lions. You imagine how quickly... Social services would be called if you let your child lead the lions. But he said, that's what it'll be like, you see. It'll be that much, that much peace. Prophet Jeremiah speaks of the coming of this one. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of this one as well. This one who will sit on the throne of David. In fact, as the prophet Ezekiel comes... He chastises the kings, the shepherds of Israel. And he says, my people have gone astray and you haven't gone gone to get them. My people are hurt and you haven't healed them. My people are hungry and you haven't fed them. You haven't ruled as God would rule over his people to protect and to provide. And so God says, I've had it with you. I'm coming. I will be the shepherd of my people. But notice how he puts it. Verse 10 of Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I'll rescue my sheep from their mouths and they may not be food for them. Thus says the Lord, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. The shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep. That have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from the places that they've scattered. 
on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them to their own land. And I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravens and in all the inhabited places of the country. I'll feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their gazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Verse 22, I'll rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. No surprise then that Matthew begins by saying, Jesus Christ, the son of David. No surprise that the Magi come and they say, where is this king to be born? didn't say this son of David, but they knew he was to be a king. No surprise that they knew it would be in Bethlehem, a city of David. No surprise that when the blind knew of Jesus coming, they said, son of David, have mercy on us. Because they knew that the son of David would come with the very rule of God and that nothing could thwart him. He would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Nothing could thwart him. He would rule even over blindness. And so they came to him and they addressed him as the son of David. No surprise when demons were exercised from people that people would look and say, is this the son of David? This kind of kingdom has come. This kind of rule even over the demons. No surprise that when Jesus comes in to the city on the, on the day we call Palm Sunday and he's sitting on a colt as a, as a king come in peace to bring peace, to establish peace that the people say, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna, son of David. No surprise, you see. They knew what he was. No surprise that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. No surprise when Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. No surprise then when he came to, to, to release the captives, to bind up the brokenhearted. None of that. Why? Because he would come, the very shepherd of Israel, and his coming, he'd be the very son of God. He would rule as God would rule, but he would be different than all the other rulers. Why? Because he is God with us. So what does that mean? It means that the kingdom of God has come. The rule of God has come in Jesus. Now, not in its completeness, we know that is to come, but it has come. It is here in some sense. It is here, you see, the very rule of God. How does he rule? Well, he's ascended. And as the one who's ascended, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he's ascended there and he rules and reigns over everything for the sake of the church. He's ruling over everything for his people. You see, he rules as a priest, rules forever. He'll never die. He'll always rule. He'll always be the one to intercede for us, to defend his people, the author of Hebrews says. He lives so that all who come to him will be saved 
completely, or the great language that I like at least, to the uttermost. Completely, you say. He won't lose any. He lives, he rules and reigns on the throne forever, you see, he rules. And he rules by way of his spirit who is in us. He rules by way of his word that's powerful. He rules by way of our declaring this word. He rules by way of our prayers to this one who has established this throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and help in every time of need. He is the wonderful counselor. That is, his wisdom is unsearchable. We need to remember this one who reigns, this wonderful counselor, during times of difficulty. Still, he rules and he reigns wisely. Even when there's war, even when there's recession, even when there's moral decline, even when there's disease and illness, he's ruling as wonderful counselor with wisdom that's unsearchable. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. Nothing can thwart him. He is the everlasting father that is to say. He is the good shepherd. So we needn't want for anything. He will cause us to lie down in places of rest and nourishment. He will restore our souls. And even when we go in the most difficult of places, even the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and his staff will comfort us. His rod will beat off enemies that come to us. His staff will move everything out of the way so that we may progress and the crook of it will even pull us out of danger, you say. He'll anoint our head with oil when we're bruised. He'll soothe us as the everlasting Father. And even though right now he rules in the midst of his and our enemies, hmm, there'll be joy. He'll set a table before us. And always goodness and mercy will follow us, will pursue us, will overtake us at every time when we need goodness and mercy. And we'll know that we'll be with him forever. He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. He brings peace, you see, between us and God, between us and each other. And a day will come when the world will be such that there will be peace. Now, how do you do this? How do you win this battle? How did he exert himself as king? How did he win this victory, if you will, as we might say it, over sin, that is a rebellion against God that keeps us from him, that he might bring peace with God, and death, this enemy that pursues us? How is it that he won this battle over sin and death? But he did it in a way that was surprising. Shouldn't have been, I suppose, but was surprising. He did it by way of his own life. He did it by way of his own 
his own death. He defeated death by death. He defeated sin by taking sin's biggest shot and living. He defeated sin and death. And we say that he defeated sin and death. We know for now what he's done is rendered sin and death powerless by taking out the sting of death. The sting of death is the law. Uh, the law comes and says to us, you've sinned. You deserve to be estranged from God, to be separated from him. You deserve death. You deserve condemnation. And so what Jesus did is he came and he took the stinger out of death and sin. And he rendered it powerless. Sin can't keep you from faith, he says. Trust me. I've overcome it. Sin won't condemn you. Trust me. I've overcome it. The night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. After giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my, my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. In making that declaration of the Lord's death, what we're saying is the king. David, son of David, Jesus Christ, the king, the anointed one, has come. God come to shepherd his people. God come to rescue his people. God come to seek and save that which is lost. God come to bind up broken hearts. God come to nourish. God come to nurture. God come to protect. God has come. And in Jesus, he has won the victory over sin and death. He's rendered it powerless. He says, now, trust me. Believe me. Receive from me. God says, you haven't come to make a house for me. I've come to make a house for you. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. If you would enable us to believe, some of us just to continue to believe. And to believe even more deeply than we've believed before. And others, perhaps, to believe. And so, Father, I pray unto the power of the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the one who's conquered sin and death, and he now would conquer every fear, every bit of unbelief, that we may trust and live. So I pray you'd set this bread, this juice apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of this one who lives and rules forever. This one who saves us. 
And I pray. And knowing that we're in his very presence, being in his very presence, will strengthen and heal and comfort and help. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.